Hi everyone, this is Working Title, the podcast where we, four intrepid, handsome, intelligent, and entirely fraudulent reviewers, watch and review IMDb's top 250 English language movies as of November 2019, going from bottom to top. So watch along with us, and... This whole thing is gonna be chopped. No, it's not. This has been a great podcast. Why are you guys so negative? All right, let me make sure my throat's clear. Um, Well, welcome back, everyone, to episode 25 of Working Title. Kind of a monumentous occasion since this is officially 10% of the way through the top 250 English language movies as rated by the people of IMDb. Huzzah! Yeah, milestones. And what are we talking about today? The 2006 film by Edwards Wick starring Leo DiCaprio, um, Blood Diamond, um, action movie. And uh, I think we're going to have a lot to say about this one. Um, But before we get started on the commentary, let's introduce ourselves. Um, We'll just go around the room, meet the reviewers in the studio. My name's Jack, and the movie cliche that bugs me that I hate to see actually uh happens in this movie my my least favorite thing ever in movies is the exposition by way of like a bunch of old like white dudes around a table like the the board members oh, explaining yeah. all of the setup <laughs> of the movie or like the old generals in action movies like talking about all the plot and it's just or, an info dump for five minutes as a bunch of random people just talk about shit that yeah. Ugh, that's who is John Stryker? He's an ex-Green Beret, Navy SEAL. <laughs> I gotcha. Well, I don't want to call back a movie that we've already done, but that was my entire complaint of the fucking Martian. Now you're going to say that's your whole thing? Over-explaining? That's your... That's your... Not over-explaining. It's the board uh, <laughs> yeah. exposition dump, not what if the they salt use, shakers. What if they use salt shakers? Would that be better? <laughs> it would be much better if they use salt shakers. Right, well, I'm glad we cleared that up. <laughs> But you know what I mean? Like five people around a table explaining just for three continuous minutes all of the plot points. Yep. Oh yeah. Or the big like social agenda of the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. If the movie's not smart enough to kind of let you figure it out as you go along, then maybe it's not a good movie. Yeah. It's it, it just either don't trust the audience or did not write it well. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I wouldn't have known this movie was about conflict diamonds if it weren't for that scene. <laughs> I literally didn't know until the end, until the uh, yeah. Kimberly Accords. Big gap in <laughs> this movie, no conflict and no diamonds. <laughs> there was a I diamond like. for like two scenes in this movie. Okay, who's next? Well, I think that's you, Shane. Ah, well, hello, <laughs> my name is Shane, and uh, my cliche is when they jump a car in a movie and it lands perfectly and keeps driving away. So, like, uh, they'll have a car, normally, like, in San Francisco, they'll launch it down the hill, and it'll be like a Lamborghini, and when it lands, it just lands on all four tires perfectly, sticks, and drives away, instead of the suspension blowing out and hubcaps (laughs) flying everywhere. (laughs) No, the best is when you actually see the suspension blow out, and then it cuts to a new car that's... (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I was like, if you did that jump, your car would be destroyed (laughs) upon landing. And I just realized we went totally out of order. So I'm next, after uh, Jack (laughs) has to wait. Um, My cliche is when a... um, when the main character or, or sub-character dies from gunshot wounds in a very peaceful manner, rather than, like, sucking air through their 
perforated chest. <laughs> How do you feel about the uh, the main character taking a gunshot, a fatal gunshot wound, and then hiking 14 miles? And, and also making a phone call across the globe <laughs> to explain that he liked this girl before he dies. And not gargling as his lungs fill with blood. <laughs> I guess that's a good movie cliche. <laughs> I don't know what to say. This isn't really a funny prompt, but... <laughs> no, it's kind of actual real gripes. Yeah, I mean, that's a legitimate gripe. All right, June. Okay, so I'm June, and my movie cliche is anytime somebody is doing anything on a computer, they're typing a fucking essay. <laughs> like, when's the last time you truly used your keyboard for anything? You know what I'm saying? They're not double-clicking on anything. That, or you can tell they're just, like, key mashing, so it sounds like this. Yes. <laughs> they're actually just doing that uh, back in elementary school and you used to learn how to type the words per minute test, just, like, trying to bust them out as fast as possible. <laughs> uh, you see their screen, and you can hear the clicky-clacky noises of their computer, but nothing is happening on the screen. Yeah. <laughs> or how every problem is solved with, like, writing code. <laughs> it's like make this image bigger you type like a hundred fucking words and it like zooms in a little bit instead of just double clicking where you wanted to zoom in enhance <laughs> that would be a good one the good cliche of the pixelated pictures that never happen when you enhance them it's not just no. a bunch of squares the um <laughs> I, I can talk a lot about my gripes with the way computers work in movies, but but I'm gonna save that for when we watch Swordfish. <laughs> they they treat computers like they treat magic. It just does whatever they need it to do. <laughs> Except for in uh, War Games, the Matthew Broderick one with the computer that plays tic tac toe, that whole <laughs> shit where they um, get the phone to do like a very specific, or they put the the phone um headset thing whatever on the computer and put noises into it that is 100 percent real oh yeah that was, that's a real thing yeah. for sure um <clears throat> anyway so blood diamond i think we're gonna come back to a couple of these um so yeah so this is a film set in uh sierra leone and kind of set during the civil war of sierra leone which was a real event um, it is kind of a window into the horrors of life, uh, in the middle of that civil war, as well as kind of a, um, a commentary on, you know, blood diamonds and consumerism and that kind of shit, as well as just kind of a, a drama in general. I think there's going to be a lot to talk about. Um, Mike, do you want to kind of start us on what happens in this movie? Sure. So we already covered the fact that it starts with a board meeting who's explaining that, the people in um, first world countries are abusing third world countries and their civil wars to fund their wars through uh, buying their diamonds and bringing them over and selling them to uh, rich white people. This movie starts out with our main character who is a fisherman and his name is Solomon Vandy. And um, his family lives in a small ro remote village <clears throat> in Sierra Leone. And the, what is it, the R RUF, the, which is a revolutionary group, um, raids his village, and they've been going through this um, civil war between the government and the RUF, taking hostages, killing off people who are going to be voting, and just trying to essentially massacre the countryside in Sierra Leone. So Sol Solomon, he gets his family to escape, but in the process he's captured by the RUF and is put into a mining camp, uh, mining blood diamonds or conflict diamonds, 
uh, out of a uh, quarry. Uh, during this process, he discovers a just this massive pink diamond that he uh, sneaks away and hides and buries. Um, when he's burying it, he gets caught by the boss who's uh, in charge of the RUF. Uh, and before he's you know executed, essentially, the actual uh, military shows up and attacks the RUF's camp and allows Solomon to uh, bury the diamond in a hidden location before being arrested and taken into custody. During all this, we have our other main character, which is played by uh, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, and he is a smuggler in the countryside from South Africa, originally born in, I think, where was it? Rhodesia. Rhodesia, which is Zimbabwe. And what he's been doing is he's a kind of a soldier of fortune. He's been uh, making his profit by smuggling conflict diamonds out of um, the neighboring country to London. And then they're being scrubbed and cleaned and sold uh, on the market as uh, expensive clean diamonds. So his whole plot is to show that there's he's kind of the middleman between the, this this horrible massacre that's occurring in the country and he's the middleman bringing these diamonds that are funding this war to the civilized first world countries so that's just like a quick recap of who these people are and how they meet they both end up in the same prison uh but the the, i guess the general guy who also saw um solomon find this this pink diamond he also gets sent to the same prison and while he's being loaded into one of his cells he um accuses Solomon of hiding this diamond and he says he's going to find it and he's going to find his family and he's going to he's going to get it from him. DiCaprio overhears this and now he's interested and he wants to he he wants to get out of there. He, he doesn't want to do this anymore, so he once he gets out of prison, he pays off some people to get Solomon out and attempts to uh figure out where this massive uh expensive diamond is being hidden. Lot lot to cover in there. So <laughs> um Going from yeah. the the beginning, actually, go ahead, Jack. I have nothing to say yet. <laughs> no, you go ahead. <laughs> oh, no, no, <laughs> so good. It's back. So, I mean, I think one of the things this film does really well is really quickly establishing the brutality of this conflict, um, which, to my knowledge, a lot of the things that you know make up the most brutal scenes in this movie were based on you know factual events like cutting people's hands off so they couldn't go vote um i i assume there's some kind of like paint your finger purple to record that you voted or not kind of thing going on so yeah yeah. Um, the, the hand thing is reported i guess to have multiple reasons behind it one being that like you can't uh mine diamonds if you don't have hands can't shoot a gun so, either. <laughs> so, yeah, it no. wouldn't uh, compete. Um, mm. But, yeah, like, they did a really good job. The The imagery was, it, it really played on, on the morality uh, of um, the viewer, really, like, instantly. Like, I don't know. You, you, it, it puts a lot of stock as to how, like, terrible the RUF was. And it does that right off the bat. It also highlights the best parts of this movie, which is the relationship between Solomon and his son, which is not really a lot in the movie, but it's like the cornerstone of the entire movie is him and his son. And like they just whenever those two are on screen together, they 
are so good at like pulling at your heartstrings. Like just him introducing, he's talking to his kid about school and you're like smiling. You're like, oh, and then they start chopping hands. (laughs) I feel like it needed more of that. Um, One of the things I noted down was like, I didn't really, um, I didn't really sympathize with Solomon uh, too much because I don't think they spent enough time like developing like why I care about this guy. Yeah. Yeah. um, They should have showed him like in his village a little more like being a big cornerstone or like doing doing more um i can agree with that yeah I, th- I, I think how he looks at his son just as jimon hunsu is as an actor he's just so good at like the emotional stuff for sure yeah i think i agree with both of you and i think we'll, we'll come back to this in a little bit but I, I do think that solomon and his son is i think really kind of the emotional anchor of the movie because um, otherwise it's kind of a bunch of randos that you who are who are bad people that you don't care about um and i i think when, when we discuss the conflict between him and his son we'll, we'll kind of come back to that though i do agree that um i wouldn't say like you know solomon's an unsympathetic character by any means but it does feel like there's some missed potential there well, well, like let me put it this way i felt i felt more emotional about that bartender getting killed <laughs> than what happened to Solomon and his family, you know? True. Yeah. Um, I, I also have a note for the uh, chopping scene real quick. Uh, when they're chopping the hands, like, I just th- heard there's music in the background, and I was thinking, like, the poor rap artist who, they're like, hey, man, we want to license your song for this movie, Blood Diamond. And he's like, oh, sick, my song's going to be in a movie? Probably sat everyone down. Oh, God. They're like... <laughs> where's your song in the movie? And they're chopping people's hands off. And it's like, yo, <laughs> motherfucker, I'm here. And it's like, oh, Jesus. <laughs> I don't mean to shit on your parade, but honestly, if somebody came to me and said, hey, I'm making this super political movie to bring to light all of these terrible atrocities that are happening, would you be a part of this? And be like, absolutely. Like, yes, I know it's going to be used in a terrible manner, but yeah, the world should know that this terrible shit's happening. Yes, Shane. While your song plays. <laughs> so every time people hear your song, they could think of people's hands being chopped off. <laughs> I just wonder if the artist was asked before his music was put into the scene or he just licensed it and then you just get to see where your song is. Well, if we know anything from Hollywood and music, there'd be a ginormous lawsuit if that weren't the case. <laughs> it was actually probably from like that stock of music that you can use for free on YouTube without licensing. <laughs> the non-royalty section. Yeah. No one would agree to be the theme song for the RUF. <laughs> well, that's a good or, segue you know, into. Go on ahead, Mike. Thanks. That was a good segue into what what I kind of took away from this movie is Solomon definitely was not um, hashed out, but I kind of feel like his character was not supposed to be that. His character was meant to be more of a um, the the viewing window, if you will, into these atrocities that have been happening to these people. Even at the end, he stands up in front of all these politicians in London. They give him a standing ovation like they know what the fuck they're talking about. That's kind of who he was as a character in the film as well. He's just used as a subject to make us... Huh understand that this movie was really political at the time i remember when it came out that it it like blew me away i didn't know any of this shit was happening i didn't know about blood diamonds or conflict diamonds at the time and it this movie really did kind of bring all this stuff to the to the limelight and to the to the yeah it was like on the news and shit yeah Yeah. so his character really was that yeah he wasn't 
somebody that we're going to remember as being a great actor because of this film. He's great in other movies, but from this movie, he was kind of dull, but really he was just the pushing point of this film. So um, to kind of come back to Leo before we move on from this section, um, he starts out as a really unsympathetic character. He is a gun runner. His intro is him flying in to do an arms deal with uh, some of, if not these rebels, then similar. Um, uh, I think they're RUF. He's a, he's a smuggler of diamonds. Yeah. He, he smuggles he, anything because he smuggles yeah. the guns. And I think he gets paid in diamonds a lot and then he smuggles those out. Yeah, exactly. And so he's he's really uh, kind of reprehensible. He gets caught by the, um, what is it, Liberian um, Border Patrol? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And he's, he's sewn a bunch of uh, diamonds into a goat and tries to bribe his way out, which is how he, you know, he ends up in jail. And um, he is really pretty reprehensible. Um, so the pieces are definitely set at that point. You can see what like the major, um, trajectories of these characters are is, um, Solomon wants to reunite with his family and Archer or Danny Archer, Leo wants to, it's kind of a question of if he'll, he'll fulfill a redemption story. Yeah, you can... You can see his whole character arc from the beginning of the scene. It's like, okay, yeah. this guy's an asshole. He's only out to take care of himself and, and get money. But then you know like he's going to run into Solomon, and then there's going to be some conflict there. He's going to try to use him, and then uh, he'll come around at the end. He's the yeah. thief with the heart of gold type thing. Uh, to go back to that goat scene, though, where he gets caught by the Liberian, this is, I'm going to be honest, my not my first viewing of the movie, but I notice he cuts the goat off the bed. He cuts the stitches on the goat and then just pulls these bloody diamonds out. I was like, did he just cut a cavity in the goat and just dump diamonds in it? Or there was no pouch or something. I was just think it was like, don't be, how do you don't, count act like it? This is, act like this is not your first time and use a condom, like put it in there. And- <laughs> I was just like, those could be some really expensive lamb chops. If you don't get them all. <laughs> Like you're just eating this goat and you're like, ow, what the, holy shit, there's why a diamond you, in my goat. <laughs> why don't you just make the, the goat eat the diamond? Whoa, now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was just like, come on, Leo, that makes no sense. And how did that guy even get the diamonds out? He would have just cut the <laughs> stitches and was there just diamonds right there? Or did he like stick his fingers and dig around? I, I had some real problems with that. <laughs> Didn't realize um, we had a goat anatomist. <laughs> I like how, uh, how how Leo's character. What, what was that guy's name? Um, Archer. I liked how Archer. His personality was like, "I'm gonna bullshit you from the beginning, and then you're gonna catch me in my bullshit. So I'll make some a little bit like more l- bullshit, but it's gonna be kind of closer to the truth. And then when you actually call me on the truth, I just like have a temper tantrum and like start smacking shit. I'm like, God damn it, they caught me, <laughs> son of a what, bitch. What I liked about this movie. I, I think the, the plot in general was, you know, kind of meh. A lot of action uh, that was very good. But there's a lot of, like, little things that just kind of enhanced the, the entire viewing. Um, probably my favorite scene in the movie, actually, is in, in this part when we are introduced to Archer. Uh, he goes and wants to talk to, uh, talk to Commander Zero, the local leader of this group of uh, militiamen. And... Uh, 
they have an interaction where they're both uh, speaking Creo, the like the mm-hmm. Sierra Leonean mm-hmm. language or whatever. And you know, I don't know how authentic that was, but that it, it was just a really cool interaction. And so this, uh, this I wanted to little... see the audition tapes for that. Just so you're like, you're gonna come here with the government and the big guns. So this 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 might be a little early to say, but one of the biggest gripes that came out when this movie first came out was um, DiCaprio's attempt to do Creole and South African and all of the accents that he did in this film. They yeah. were at times rough and his uh, Creole and thanks for uh, identifying that June, but that did kind of make me raise an eyebrow. Well, you could hear his English accent. Well, I mean, you can hear his regular speaking voice come out way too often during his like dramatic scenes. I yeah. will argue that He's never been the best person at accents. Um, but Has he been he, in a movie with an he's, accent? He's been in a few where he does Django like a southern Unchained. accent. Um, yeah. Oh, Django Unchained was amazing. Another one he did. But uh, he's always in good looking movies that distract you from it. So you don't notice it. He's done like much. New York and some localized mm-hmm. American accents too. But mm-hmm. I, I've heard this as like both ways i think like half the people say his like south african accent is really good and the other half say it's trash because hmm. like the creole i can forgive like we can all assume danny archer's primary language is not creole yeah sure. so like i can you know give him the benefit of the doubt there but i also don't really know how a south african accent is supposed to sound so <laughs> i've heard That's it a- so many different ways like yeah. there's not just one south african accent <laughs> you know, I that's mean, a fan- fantastic you watch point. Like, I was about to say the only thing that I know South African is the N word, and I'm sure that's not the best right. South African accent <laughs> to go off of. No, I'm sure you all have seen District Nine. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, what's that director's name? Um, Neil Neil Blomkamp. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I mean, it's certainly in the ballpark, but it. I mean, well, he's I not know. South African, is he? He's Rhodesian. Which yeah, is he Zimbabwe. Grew up in South, he grew up in South Africa. That's true. Yeah. He was in a Hugh young Jackman age. did a pretty good South African accent. That we know of. Maybe it was trash. Yeah, what can't Hugh Jackman do? <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Wait, Hugh Jackman was a District 9, right? No, he was in a Chappie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> District 9 too. <laughs> District right, 9 too. <laughs> Let's move okay. on. <laughs> Char- Charlize Theron, if you're listening, let us know if uh... come, come on the show. We'll talk about it. You know, does anyone have her have her number? Can we get in touch? Uh, yeah, I got a new phone. You know, so <laughs> oh boy. All right, so yeah, let's let's carry on. What, what happens from here, Mike? All right, where do we leave off? He just barely got out of prison, right? Yeah. Yes. yes. Uh, yeah. Okay. So so he's out of prison, and um, so he leaves. Um, and goes to Cape Town. Uh, Archer leaves and goes to Cape Town to meet up with his employer, which is Colonel. Um, so this is where I, I'm, I've been not looking forward to this episode because of the names. And I think somebody already mentioned that. But it looks like Kotizi, but I'm sure that's not how it's pronounced. <laughs> Kotizi. Kotizia. 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 That's no. how Archer says it. He says, I'm, I'm friends with Colonel Kotizia. Yeah, okay. So mm, he meets up what? with the Colonel in Cape Town. <laughs> And um, 
somehow the colonel figured out that uh, Archer has come across this diamond or figured out about this diamond, um, probably from one of his informants. In the meantime, uh, Solomon is working in the capital, trying to make some money, and at the same time, uh, I guess, trying to figure out how to find his family. Um, so Archer knows that Solomon knows where the diamond is, and he's trying to convince the colonel that... He doesn't know where it is because the colonel has, he's, is kind of aware of his um, intentions to go back and find this diamond. Um, but Archer has to, in order to get the diamond and get out of the country and get out of the business, needs to uh, trick the colonel into thinking he doesn't know what's going on. So Archer returns back to, um, I guess they're in Liberia now. Did they get arrested to Liberia? I don't know. They, he returns back to where they were at in prison and finds Solomon. And right when he finds Solomon... Uh, this the revolutionaries are coming into the capital. At least they're being uh, perceived as coming into the capital soon. It's kind of um, tensions are high in the city. Uh, Archer goes to a bar where he has one of his contacts, uh, gets a, a a gun from him, and meets the the reporter that is the prominent character for the rest of the film, uh, which is played by Jennifer Connelly. Her name is. Fuck if I know. Oh, Maddie Bowman. Maddie Maddie. Bowen. Bowen, yeah. So Archer meets Maddie, and she is a reporter, and immediately Archer doesn't like her because he is a smuggler, and we get a brief interaction with them, and overnight, the revolution kicks off. The RUF comes into the city, uh, takes over, destroys the militia in a day, and Solomon and Archer are then kind of bound to each other at this point. Like Solomon was resistant to Archer's uh, deal for with the exchange for the diamond. He would get his family out. But because of this revolutionary war that's happening around them, they have to flee the city together. And they ended up hooking up together regardless of what's happening. So they flee the city and Archer gets him out. And they make it to where the... Um, the refugees are starting to gather after this um, battle that happened in the city. And Archer finds Maddie and uses her as a way of getting in a convoy that's going to go up the up the uh, the combat zone to the area where Solomon has buried the diamond, uh, as well as stopping by a refugee camp where we can, you know, fill in a little bit of gaps, but... Essentially, what happens is Solomon finds out that his family made it out, um, but their son, Dia, was captured by the RUF. And the RUF has been, what they do is they, they capture young kids and they make them children's soldiers. They get them hooked on drugs. They brainwash them as a family kind of a thing. They pretty much give them this indoctrination that causes them to become these little child soldiers that are very loyal to the RUF. So at this point, the the next half of the movie is Archer, Solomon, Maddie attempting to get the diamond for Archer, get Solomon's son, and then Maddie wants a story that will actually blow this all out and bring it to the light and show that it's not just happening in Africa. It's a worldwide organization that is causing these atrocities and funding these wars. Okay. Yeah, a lot, lot to cover. Yeah, lot lot to unpack there. Um, I, I do think it's worth mentioning that uh, the journalist Maddie is kind of the the last, or the journalist and the colonel are kind of the last pieces. Um, they are kind of the two uh, forces that tug on Archer, uh, the colonel trying to uh, 
use him to get this diamond and uh maddie being the the force for good um so yeah those those kind of complete like the the set pieces of the uh the cast mm-hmm. that's another cliche that kind of goes into this movie that drives me crazy is he they her and archer barely know each other they have a couple flirtations they talk a little bit but like there it feels like there's not enough there for his arc to occur because of her you know what i mean like they kind of hinge it on he wants to get out and you know she's kind of a play in there and stuff but they knew each other for maybe two days total and they and to to kind of piggyback on what you're saying they never really said anything to each other that was like game changing like they met and they hated each other because of their different stances on ethics but after that, their conversations, like, the only thing that I think happened after that was during the, the convoy, um, Archer kind of performed valiant, valiantly by saving some people, but not really. Like, Solomon picked a little boy up and carried him to a vehicle, but Archer didn't do much. Yeah, it would have been kind of fucked up, though, if her and Solomon got together, so. Yeah. <laughs> I do I like mean, the dynamic between the two. Um, I think it was more to it than, like, he's, you know, reporter and smuggler. Because, like, Archer has grown up in pretty much in conflict his entire life and has, you know, intentionally placed himself in the middle of it. So I think he has a better lens on, like, the underlying problems and whatever, and he's just sick of outside reporters coming in thinking they know the solutions, uh, whether Maddie does or not, you know? Right. Well, well, that's a great point, because Maddie ends up revealing that she has also uh, intentionally chased conflicts her entire career. She said that she's gone through a bunch of relationships and what have you, but has always been uh, putting herself in a conflict situation. So that's that's OK. That I get that. Like if Archer is that type of person and it is revealed that Maddie is also that type of person, I can see that attraction. I, I mean, I think their dynamic um, makes sense transactionally to me. Um, I mean, they both have something the other wants. So it makes sense why they um, they work together. In that Maddie needs someone who can prove all these things about the diamond trade, someone who can go to record and someone who can like actually say something verifiable that will, you know, indict someone. Um, and uh, there are a myriad of things that Archer can use Maddie for, uh, whether it's her credentials or getting access to things or um using her to do a favor for Solomon so he can get Solomon to get him the diamond. Um, it, it certainly makes sense with Archer as a person who uses people. Right. Who would have uh, thought that being a reporter in Africa would give you the ability to find refugees in a camp of a million people? I noted that too. I was like, she did what Interpol couldn't? <laughs> An international organization, but she's like, oh, let me talk to someone. I assume she just calls the international organization that he went to and asks them. <laughs> you know, I honestly read that as kind of um, sort of an indictment on the the people who just kind of show up to fix things, and she automatic automatically gets more access and ability to do things just because she's a Westerner, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. They even touch on that. Um, he goes. Uh, Solomon goes to ask like one of the workers about his family, and he replies with, "Go talk to the white guy." Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's true. I yeah, also. And, oh, go ahead. Yeah, I, I think she was able to do that by virtue of being American as much as he, 
because she was um, a journalist. And I think that is like a very, I don't know if I assume intended, but a very uh, subtle criticism of kind of the way people show up trying to fix problems in issues like this. So I've been in trouble in foreign countries and I've had to go to U.S. embassies (laughs) while I've been there. (laughs) And I got to tell you, they made me pay a lot of money to get out of trouble. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk about that. (laughs) Um, I had a note here and maybe maybe it's totally off base, but they're like, oh, she's an adrenaline junkie. What a badass. She visits all these crazy places. They reference Afghanistan in the early 90s or late 80s. Which I guess they were fighting the Soviets, but okay, that's a little <laughs> dangerous. But Bosnia, I was like, Mike almost went to Bosnia on a Kickstarter. Mike or Shane, <laughs> do you know what happened in Bosnia in the nineties? <laughs> Shane, just... I'm, gonna g- I'm gonna give you one opportunity to just stop this line of, of thought right here. Unless, <laughs> <laughs> unless you got you got ten seconds to bring it back. <laughs> so I, I do want to come back to something else. So besides Maddie. As kind of the the force um, on Archer, there's the Colonel. Um, and I think this was probably the best scene in, potentially the best scene in the entire movie. Um, when he goes to uh, Colonel Coetzee's estate and um, he walks him through and kind of makes this gesture of um, picking up the red dirt and you know, letting it spill through his fingers saying, you know, like the, the, it's red because of all the blood that's spilt over this. And, you know, this is in your blood and you'll never leave Africa, which I think was like maybe a little cliche, but done well enough in execution that it, it really came across powerfully. And at the end, especially. Yeah. And, and it was, uh, bookended really well, um, really kind of helped tie the movie together but we'll come back to that, you know, in a bit. Did you recognize so, who the actor was who played Colonel Kutsia? Arnold. Is the mummy himself. Yeah, Arnold Voslo. Oh, wow. You actually knew his name. Damn. Are you the only one who doesn't have Wikipedia open? I just, no, I, I saw that and I went, oh, he worked for Emotep. <laughs> <laughs> That's my note. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's that he's that guy from G.I. Joe, The Rise of Cobra. I guess he made it past Brendan Fraser, and now he's running mercenaries <laughs> in Africa. So I was... I don't think that whole dynamic between Thanks. Colonel Kutsi and the, uh, the his PMC, I don't think that was really fleshed out too well. I was kind of confused as to how the structure of that organization went. Like, So I'd like to talk about that. Do you want, like, an so, order of battle or something? Well, well like, no, like... I understand from later in the movie that he was his old commander, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, in the beginning, when he keeps bringing up the colonel, it just sounds like, oh, I, I, you know, my old war buddy, like he's he'll get us out of this jam. But right. then it turns out he's under his employment as a smuggler, and then it's like, I, I just, I know it it's now almost from like reading it. Servitude. Well, yeah. So I know it now from like reading it, but the the pink diamond in question, like the motivations between the two of them, I just don't think were fleshed out very well. And how does everyone no. find out about this pink? Cause then could Sia know about the diamond before he told him about it? Or did Leo tell him about it first? No, Leo, Leo told him about it. And it, okay. I guess it turns out uh, that because he 
because Archer fucked up with the whole sheep or the goat situation. Yeah, he um, owes him money. Yeah, he owes him now the, you know, he's like, I got this big diamond, like, it'll make it all, it'll, it'll make it straight. Oh, the classic, so, uh, I'm in trouble, so I got then, a bigger score. Yeah, but then on the other side of it, like, it, you know, who is his, who is his contracting company, like, working, I don't know, man, it was just, so, I so think if it was I too could, much. So I figured, so I was in the same boat as you, June, but after, halfway through the movie, I figured it out. So, Archer's relationship to the Colonel, and Colonel's relationship to the big company that's in London, which is called, let me look it up real quick. It was in, it's a big it diamond was, trading company. It's De Beers, but not De Beers. Yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's so, in the movie. <laughs> yeah. So Archer's, so Archer's deal is this. When he was a young kid, he left, he fled the country of um, Zimbabwe to, after his parents were murdered, right? At 19 in South Africa, he joined the military and he fought with the colonel under his command during the actual military, um, uh, oust of the current government during the 90s or 80s and after that when they became obsolete when peace was met the colonel took his now soldiers of fortune and started doing their own kind of business where they're now kind of militia group or not militia group sorry they're uh, uh, mercenaries and he continued to work for this colonel but also started to kind of branch off and do his own operation smuggling diamonds. Now, all the money still went through the colonel who had the ties to London where they were selling oh, his products. Oh, I see. So he was the direct tie to Vandicap. Right. But okay. Leo finds this diamond, and he this is his opportunity to get out from underneath the colonel, who he owes a lot of money to, and not only that, but like a life debt to. And he is now trying to betray the colonel and the company to get out from underneath it. I see. Yeah, um... There are a couple of things I thought that were really interesting about it because I think um, Archer doesn't he, – he does want to get out from under the colonel, but I think he also looks at him as like a father figure. I think that's like a genuine um, relationship they have, which is an interesting conflict. I also think um, it's uh, painting a really interesting picture with uh, Colonel Coetzee who runs this private military organization uh, that – you know, is employed, especially later on in the movie, to to fight the rebels and to keep order, but who is also playing both sides and selling the diamonds too. I thought that was kind of an insidious detail that um, kind of filled out this picture of even the people who are helping aren't, everyone's wrapped up in this. It's, you know, corruption up and down the entire way. And, uh, and then, you know, also an element of everyone is using everyone. Like everyone is just waiting to to put the knife in the back of the people they're working with. Yeah, all with yeah. the end goal of profiteering. Yeah, just just to make money. Right. Like they're driving down diamond prices by hiding them in a vault and therefore they have to keep mining and all sorts of things, yeah. Is that real? Yes, the vault, the they, diamond they can, vault thing, that yeah, is like a real thing. Yeah, like they control supply by That's crazy. Oh, yeah, that yeah. that was one of the other things that came out after this movie is it was it was headlines about how Yes, they, they take all of these diamonds and they hold them at essentially at ransom to drive the prices through the roof of other ones. Yeah, because wow. diamonds aren't that uncommon, I guess. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> really a cubic zirconium guy. Yeah. <laughs> Blood cubic zirconium. <laughs> <laughs> it's the only way I get married. Did it's we just, just a bunch of interns working over hours to make synthetic diamonds. That's not that interesting. <laughs> It's not as it's not as dramatic. <laughs> Did we cover that Solomon finds his wife and yeah? And so kid. I hit on that. So they so, so I got, 
I was just going to recap real quick. So Solomon yeah. and Maddie and Archer, they make it to a refugee camp in, um, I think, Lung? Lungi? Anyways, so they... Lungi? Lungi? Lungia? Yeah, that, that one. <laughs> so they find um, Solomon's family, but I did mention that Dia, their son, was um, missing. Yeah, so I got a gripe about that. They make... They juxtapose this scene very poorly to where... It suspends disbelief in a, in a way. So they they come up over this like beautiful rolling hillscape to this gigantic refugee camp, and they specifically say this is what a million people looks like or yes. a million refugees looks like, <laughs> one million fucking people, and they CGI'd in a giant giant camp. I know. I was like, that looks like L.A. And <laughs> one. You're telling me one man just looking through the fence happens to find his wife and and kid within like, you know, we can we can give him the benefit of the doubt, but it looked like 30 minutes. He just sat there outside the fence and it's like, oh, there they are. Really? That's so true. That's, <laughs> your gripe yeah. goes into my gripe with this film. Time passes very strangely in this film. So from the beginning to the they end, would... like, Solomon got another job before he even met Archer. Like, he was working at, like, a <laughs> hotel. True. Well, it, like... So who knows? It could have been a week. <laughs> but, like, that scene, you know, like, what did they... They didn't. They wouldn't have lost anything by saying this is a small refugee camp, and then it would have been more believable that he found his fucking family in thirty minutes. They were done looking for them in time to get back on the same helicopter later. They <laughs> <laughs> yeah. refueled and was ready to go. <laughs> and then, like the scene where he's meeting up with them, like he's sitting there and he's they're all happy, and he's like, "Where's my son?" And like. They progress through that so quickly. It's almost like he discards the entire family. Like, fuck you. Where, no, where's they, Dia? <laughs> he takes he takes a rifle butt to the face three times. Yeah, he does. Oh, that was kind of weird, too. He's just like, ah! As they're, like, hitting his hands. <laughs> that is a good point, too, Shane. It's like, oh, it's, you know, my wife and child. And my baby. Uh, it's like, hey, good to see you again. Where's my son? <laughs> yeah, he skips. Like, I understand. Like, I'm all not discrediting. Nothing. Fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not discrediting well. that he wouldn't be like, they, but they would all be upset. They're kind of like, oh, Dia didn't make it. And he's like, you what? <laughs> well, I think, not, I think not like they had a choice, bud. <laughs> it was, I think it was written poorly how they approached that. I think it should have been them all really? like. All right. Well, think about this. We've all been to Northern Africa and Middle East. Uh, like, the, the amount of male versus female importance is kind of obscured there well when you're selling a movie to westerners with a different idea i think you have to play a more equal value on family but I, i've never been to northern africa what Mike's, i said middle Mike east has been to northern africa and almost bosnia <laughs> and the middle east and the middle east never quite got you to sarajevo did we <laughs> did not get you to sarajevo so, uh, so close yeah, let's let's go forward a little bit because I, I think we're starting to kind of push into the territory of the did, rest of the movie. Did we cover the indoctrination of Dia? Uh, Mike touched on his recap, but go on ahead, do Shane. It's a great jumping off point if you want. Yeah, I, I, was... I would love to hear what Shane has to say about this. Oh boy. So so Dia Solomon's son uh, during the meantime of either maybe a week, maybe a month. We don't know at this point. A long time has happened, and Dia is now joined the militia group. He is now a full-fledged RUF uh, militia child. So, back to Solomon, Archer, and Maddie, 
who have now left the refugee camp and they have made their way up to or down to the um, the colonel's camp. They, they stumble upon him. Um, we can cover a little bit. There's there's a couple of other characters that meet in the meantime. Kind of a segue into showing the importance of family and, you know, the actual society of Africa and the, the real meaning behind it all where they meet this, um, I guess they're a guerrilla group. I think they call them the commandos. The commandos who are defending their towns against the militia as well as the military itself they're like a subsect of people who are just trying to live in peace and this is pretty important for the development of archer and maddie who during their stay there find that they are similar in their ethos and, and what they actually are as people after they leave there the villager leader helps them but gets stopped at a roadblock by some of the ruf child soldiers who uh, shoot this man and they have to rush him to an airfield that's down the road that's being controlled by the military group, um, the colonel of Archer's past, right? So he gets brought in and says he knows where the diamond is and the colonel says, okay, like, you're now part of this operation, like, suit up, you're going with us. Uh, So Archer comes out, talks to Solomon, and comes up with a plan to steal a bunch of gear and make their own way through the jungle to the diamond without the colonel knowing where they're going. And he gives Maddie all the information she needs to finish her piece about the blood diamonds and the trade that's going on. He gives her the addresses, or not the addresses, the bank accounts, the names, and the dates of what she needs to write this story to blow this you know, all out in the open and show people that this conflict diamond trade is actually real and happening, which is what her whole reason for being there is. Um, so Archer and Solomon, they start to leave. Maddie tries to go with them, but Archer convinces her to get on the airplane and fly to um, I, I, wherever they're going. They're evacuating the area. Um, she helps out in like allowing him to go in and distracting the guards so he can get some gear. And Solomon and Archer uh, run off into the jungle to get the diamond. So I think this is a good place to talk about some stuff because I got some stuff to say. As you were saying all that, I realized now why I f- thought at the end of this movie, I was like, fuck, this movie's long. <laughs> it was long. There, I think now that you talk about it, the issue is it doesn't really focus on a core. It, it does like Blood Diamond and it's focusing on Conflict Diamonds. But then it goes off a lot on the Child Soldier issue, which I think makes this movie stretch out more than it should. Not that it was, like, bad. It's not a detriment completely, but I think it needed to focus more on the on what it wanted to say. Like, Beast of No well, Nation is about child soldiers, so it doesn't feel its length, per se, because it's, it's sending a message home about one thing. This kind yeah. of dips its toes everywhere. Yeah, well... I- as we said, um, you know, time flows funny in this movie. Time also flows funny. Watching this movie, I, I do agree that it would have benefited from focusing on one or the other. Um, I kind of felt like we did get a little bit of a situation where the child soldier stuff seemed like such a compelling story, but it we we never got enough of it to really yeah, form to like something meaningful. Grasp on the way the way that I read it though was. That the diamond was just a vehicle to portray Sierra Leone. I, I saw this more of a film about the conflict itself than the diamond trade. Um, 
And maybe that was not the intention and it just happened that way because of exactly what you said. But that's what I I ended up with. I I do agree. I mean, like the whole thing is sort of like there's there's certainly a commentary on like the diamond trade. That's that's completely unavoidable. Um, I think. Yeah, I don't know. That's that's an interesting theory. I can see it. The more emotional points in the movie come from the child soldier because that's like obviously – at least in my opinion, a much more horrific crime that's being portrayed in this than like the di- you know the, yeah, the resources. It's, are, but it's one you can you can feel and latch on a little more. It's very human scale, right? right. Like it's hard to relate to it. So a I feel national like Dia conflict. was used to kind of bring those tearjerker moments because you weren't going to find them as easily with the conflict diamonds. At least I don't know. It just the Dia story is where I got the most emotion. But it was the most distracting part of the movie. It's it's kind of like I don't know. It's the movie's a little long, and I'm just trying to figure out ways that they could have tightened it up a bit. But yeah, uh, Mike, what what were your thoughts on this section? Um, honestly, with this section, so my main thoughts are going to come at the very end. But my biggest takeaway from this certain stop of the of the plot was why the fuck did um maddie suddenly want to like go with them to get the diamond that was fucking bizarre like they're also i got another we're gonna we're gonna break this up a little bit so they went into this tent <laughs> to steal a bunch of shit right and they're, so they're grabbing these kits and dicaprio is just like shoveling shit into a bag like he's grabbing mres he's grabbing goggles he's grabbing everything he can even like whiskey he grabs a bunch of jack daniels yeah i'll mention that and later they they walk out of this tent with like fucking like knapsacks like they're like the size of a toddler's backpack. How the hell did they fit all of that survival gear that they're going to be going out into the fucking wild? Dude, they for a couple of up. days. They, they ate all of the MREs and drank all of the whiskey before they went in, they in the back of the tent. <laughs> <laughs> and then Connolly, she's just suddenly like, because. Archer's like, we're going to go. And he, and she's like, well, I want to come with you. And he's like, well, I won't tell you that you like, you, I'm going to say no. And she's like, well, what if I insist? And he's, he's like, I insist that you don't come with us. Listen, <laughs> we're going to a blood. We're going to a quarry where there's bad people killing people. Like, no, you can't come with us. And she's like, okay, here's my phone number. And that was the end of their interaction. <laughs> she's like, you're going to call, right? And he's like, I'm going to die. <laughs> <laughs> So that I means so that's my thoughts. So yeah, coming back to movie cliches. So like the whole the whole man going off to do danger and his woman being like, "No, I'm coming with you," or "No, don't." And he's like, "Too bad, I'm going anyway." Like it's, I mean, it's kind of a trope. Um, up until this point, up until this point, Maddie was giving him a you know shit for being this cold blooded smuggler, and now suddenly she wants to go with him to. Help inevitably shovel somebody to death. Like, <laughs> it's it's like is, can can you not see, Matty, that this is far outside of your skill set? <laughs> now, I will say it it could have been a lot worse. So it's going true. back to tropes and Shane's point about cutting the movie down, like this could very easily have gone full Pearl Harbor <laughs> and just turned into some stupid romance mm-hmm. set in like a terrible conflict. True. You know? So the the way that they they did not fully establish a relationship and made the focus purely on the atrocities happening in this in this uh, time and place were uh, it was ideal. Speaking of atrocities, 
sorry. Um, <laughs> this is, <laughs> this is gonna that. be bad. Um, when they're when they're in the convoy, and they're like driving around, there was so many things I was thinking. Like first, the soldiers that are escorting the the journalist convoy. I'm sure they were like, "Oh man, score! We just got to escort some journalists around instead of going out in the jungle against shot." Like, this is awesome. They proceed to get ambushed um, by the RUF. All the journalists die. Just get gunned down in this. <laughs> to that point of like the whole journalist convoy getting ambushed. This is another weird trope in war movies where somehow there's there's no concept of like a a front line. Ever. Yeah, right? True. And, like, why weren't there people stopping them? Yeah, and like, why why are you driving a whole bus full of journalists with like a, a jeep full of guards through an area if it's like an active hot zone? Like even in Vietnam, which was, you know, the, the quintessential, quintessential guerrilla war of the, the 20th century, right? Like, it wasn't like, you know, bus loads of Charlie journalists. was popping up. <laughs> you know everywhere at all times i mean and and sierra leone's defense they're not the u.s government so we don't know their policies on journalistic movement that's a a fantastic point (laughs) but But no i i did wonder i'm like how many journalists die every year getting ambushed like in war zones because this made it look like journalists were just getting massacred like the draft like it was (laughs) i i was like are there really that many journalists dying all the time or is this just kind of glorifying journalism in a way? Combat journalism? Yeah. So the whole thing with combat journalism and also like soldiers of fortune, that's something that I thought was interesting about this film is there there, there must be um, a type of person who spends their life doing military work or doing that type of like journalism and then can't get away from it. I think that's kind of a, the point of this film is these people are drawn to this kind of conflicts. And what a like what a life what a life to live like constantly seeking out you know, hot zones and terrible like situations. To that though, this movie kind of like pissed me off a little bit. Where it's like, oh yeah, she's the best and everything. Like it made me like I have to shake her hand in a bar and thank her for her service. Like I was like, I I, get, I think they're uh, pumping up journalists a little too much. Not that there aren't badass journalists who are going into crazy places and stuff, but they the bus thing was a little much for me. But. I also wasn't there, so fuck it. Maybe maybe it was crazy. <laughs> I'd like to uh, rewind a little bit. Uh, another gripe with this movie, the the Solomon and Dia story. How did the ringleader of this sect of the RUF like know? Did he deliberately target Dia, or did he just happen to stumble upon him? I thought I it was a coincidence. Yeah. Yeah. But they, they made it sound it. like it was like he's been scouring the earth to find this guy's son so he can get his diamond. Yeah, because I gotta. How did I gotta, he even I know Solomon's name? Like, I know he like worked in the quarry, but he was just slave number seven in the quarry. You know, like how did he's yeah. like, oh, you, and then your son. I'm gonna find your son, and I know what he looks like. Like, <laughs> so so these these revolutions in these countries are very small sect. These are small towns where people know each other. It'd be very easy for him to actually, uh, you know, torture his villagers to find out who he was. Like that's not unbelievable. Like, I mean, the the impression I got was that it was entirely coincidental. Like they they found these people somewhere else and recruited uh, his son, and he happened to. Rise up through the ranks is kind of a, a gross-sounding term for what 
happens, but he, you know, he, he got singled out and, you know, uh, groomed, I guess. Yeah. Um, but, but he intentionally did that. He knew who he was though. He knew he was Dia Vandy. Yeah, but he didn't know who Solomon Vandy was. Yeah. No, he did. When they, when he, yes, he did. When he got arrested in the very beginning, he said, I know who you are, Solomon Vandy. And then when he found Dia Vandy, he, when he's grooming him to be a captain, he says Dia Vandy while he gives him the captain hat. So he did intentionally. Yeah, but did he? I don't recall yes. him ever knowing Solomon's name. I, I think it's, he, it's relying way too heavy on that guy's memory. Yeah, I, you guys, are, I, you, honestly, you guys are all missing a very big point. At the very beginning of the film, uh, the dude, Poison, or whatever his name is, Poison, he calls out Solomon in the prison cell and says, I know who you are, I know who your family is, Solomon Vandy. But my question but is, then, how the hell does he know that? At because this point, he, his, because this, is a, this, this is a small revolutionary war. These people live next to each other. I don't think other. it's like, as small as you think, Mike. It's not like there's 20 not. people. <laughs> there's like thousands of RUF. And like, yeah, regardless, and, and it's regardless not like for the spot, they just went was. back to the same village. His family has already fled, and they are God knows where at this point when they get picked up by RUF. All right. So story wise in the film. All right. Like, I get what you guys are saying. Like, yeah, it sounds silly. But for the fucking movie and the way the movie went, no, he, knew who he, was, sure. he knew who his family was. So drop the fact like the plot is he knew who his family was. I think we're missing the point, though. Is Dia, now that he's going to high school in Europe, do not fuck with him. Like, he is probably the most badass. I, I want to see a bully mess with Dia. <laughs> I, I don't know that we want he's, to elevate his uh, his experiences fucking, getting hooked on heroin and being forced that's to what I'm kill saying, unarmed like, prisoners. A, a, a bully wants to fuck with him. He's done heroin and killed people. Do not fuck with Dia. <laughs> he's I got a clear question for you. How the hell did the RUF captain get out of prison? I assume he just I paid his bail. Assume, yeah, I, I assume he's busted out when they invade the city. But it's also a good point. I didn't think about that. Hmm. All right, where, where are we um, now? This podcast is going to be 20 minutes long after I cut most of it. <laughs> no, this dude hasn't been talking much. Everything Shane says and everything adjacent that he taints. Oh, come yeah. on. Um, not that bad. Yeah, so, so what happens next? Take us through the end. So, so Solomon and Archer have now left to go and find the diamond and, um, according to Solomon, hopefully Dia, which Archer believes to be a fruitile uh, attempt. So they make their way through the jungle, and while they're going along, Solomon makes a mistake. Like, there's a bunch of the RUFs coming through the jungle, and he stands up because he thinks he sees his son in the back of a cab while they're trying to hide, and he yells out Dia, which almost gets Archer and Solomon killed. But they manage to escape, and they hide. And this is where Archer kind of shows his true colors. And he tells him that, like, hey, if you ever, like, put my life in danger again, I'll kill you. Um, so Solomon now knows that Archer's kind of a two-faced kind of a guy. I mean, he's been a smuggler this whole film, so it's not a big surprise. Anyways, they make it to the the quarry where the, uh, Solomon was enslaved and was mining these diamonds and where he hid this, this giant uh, pink diamond. During the first day that they're there... Archer uses a sat-nav that he stole from the colonel's uh, military camp and calls in and says that he uh, is requesting the colonel to send a um, combat helicopter out to attack this camp that where the diamond is. And that's going to, like, the, the, the helicopter's going to be there the next day. So they go to sleep during the night. Solomon sneaks down into the camp, determined to find Dia, who he still thinks is alive, 
and Archer wakes up to discover that he is gone, goes after him, and through the turn of events, Solomon gets discovered when he finds Dia and approaches him, and he is captured, and the the captain at the very beginning, the guy who lost his eye, he now wants Solomon to dig up the diamond for him, and Archer, in the meantime, is trying to figure out how to um, liberate Solomon as well as get the diamond. The end of the film... The colonel shows up with an attack helicopter. Uh, Solomon ends up using the shovel that he's provided to assault the, the captain, and he kills him with the shovel in the pits while the chaos is occurring around him. And they go and get captured by the colonel, who now wants the diamond for himself. So the colonel comes in, kills all of the, the RUFs, and takes Archer and Solomon and Dia as hostages in order to find the diamond. Uh, the final scene is Solomon digging for the diamond and Archer trying to find a, a way out of this whole situation because he knows he's going to die. He's he's kind of like talked to Solomon a little bit back and forth and they're both aware that once they get the diamond, they're both dead. Um, Archer even goes to the extent of trying to like play a ploy of using Dia as bait. Once they find the diamond, Archer creates a diversion and the colonel and all of his men get shot and killed while... Solomon and Archer get the diamond out. However, during the firefight, Archer takes a bullet uh, through the like the sternum, and they're now trying to escape with the diamond. And Dia and Solomon up the hill to where there's a landing strip where their their contact is coming with a single prop plane to pick them up and get them out of the country. But up the hill, Archer essentially is bleeding out and can't make it, so he uh, he gets left behind and tells Solomon uh, how to get out of there with the diamond and where his contact is and uh, dies on the hill while he's trying to flee. And Solomon makes it to London where Maddie meets up with him and they blow this whole thing out and they, they go to Congress or whatever the court is in, in London to bring light to the, the conflict diamond trade in Africa. So that's the entire film. Um, this part of the film, the back third, uh, act three, I guess, would be uh, where the actors, especially uh, Jimon Honsu, is that how you pronounce his name? Jimon? Yeah. All right, yeah. Uh, really show off what they can do as actors. Like when he, they, Archer and him have their little brawl um, where he wants to go get Dia and then like Archer's like, we're going this way or I'll kill you. And then, like, he just starts screaming at him. I think he's saying, like, I have nothing left or something like that. Or uh, He is so damn good at the emotional yell. I do not know another actor that can yell emotion and do what he does. Because it's kind of his thing as an actor. It's like every movie he does, he has the moment where he does that. It's just because it's so powerful coming from him. He doesn't. Know, Arnold's pretty good at it too. <laughs> ah, I have nothing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that's that's my uh, point on that one. Uh, Leo DiCaprio does a good job too when he's on the phone with Maddie. That's a that's a really good scene. Couple tear jerking moments. I even wrote in my notes the moment when him and Dia, where he's telling Dia he's a good boy that you know loves dogs and like all the stuff from his past to make him remember was like such a tearjerker. I just wrote in my notes. I may have found a big fish because I was just tearing up when he's like, you're a good boy. I was like, Oh God. 
Yeah. Um, I think one thing that bugged me about this, and maybe it's intentional, maybe this is a credit to the movie, but I'm, I'm not sure. Um, so this is all kind of resolved by calling in the, you know, the PMC, the private military company to do all the fighting. And then it's, it's all gunfighting and then they kill the, the Colonel and it kind of felt a little antithetical to like resolve this problem with violence, if that makes sense. <laughs> Yay. Like, I, the private yeah, military there's, there's companies no... here. <laughs> yeah. And, and then, oh, and then what do we do? We, killed uh, the private military company uh okay the private military country was what the company was a bad guy from the beginning though like the first time that archer met with him with the colonel when they went down to cape town it was obvious that this dude was kind of sketchy well yeah yeah and i mean like i think everyone's motivations uh, one thing that is admirable i think is for a movie where everyone is trying to backstab each other it's it's remarkably clear what their motivations are <laughs> everyone's goal is on the table right and i think that's a credit right like it's it's both uh there's both conflict but it's it's clear and you're not relying on like keeping secrets from the audience which is can be frustrating um but the whole idea of i mean the the root problem of this entire movie is this violence and people uh killing each other over you know stupid shit um it felt a little um wrong to solve the core of the movie with violence and i you know i I don't see another plausible way to accomplish that to have these you know these three people get the diamond and go i think the solution comes after the ending violence though in that we fully expect uh archer to be the last backstab right like he's gonna fuck over solomon take the diamond for himself and so I think the big like full circle is that he sacrifices himself essentially to get Solomon and Dia out of there. I don't think um, they did a good enough job painting that for Leo though. We I feel like we all knew that he wasn't going to do that. They didn't lead us enough that Archer actually might do that. I also feel like it's a little cheaper since he was mortally wounded anyway. Like it, it feels like less of a sacrifice to be like, all right, go on without me, like, take the diamond it, yeah. when he's already dying. Yeah, I would, I would well, argue too, though, that the the motivation for them going in, like Leo or Archer, was not all that confident that he would make it out. True, you know. So it it wasn't. It was semi honorable in the sense that like this would have been everybody's way out to include Solomon. So he went in, um, but it wasn't it it. it it seemed less like he was so motivated, like Bilbo and the one ring kind of thing. You know, it was more like he understood the risks and it, it came full circle in the end to where he doesn't, he doesn't make it out, you know? Yeah. So I felt the, the, there was kind of a, the, the solo paradox in this film, right? Like at no point during the beginning half of this movie, did I feel like Archer's character had any kind of redeeming qualities. He was obviously trying to do it for himself the entire time. And the last 10 minutes, now suddenly he's like a saint. It, it just, it's, that's bullshit. Like, I'm, that doesn't make any sense and it doesn't hash out a character development. You can't just like make a character and say, this is who he is. And then at the very end, be like, I see what now you're for saying. The, yeah. Tear jerk moment. Tied there was no, nicely. there was no turning point. Yeah. Right. He never really had the realization. He talks about his past. And I guess we're supposed to 
that's supposed to mean well, that he, got, he he got drunk on milk in the forest. <laughs> <laughs> We're missing the most important point here, though, and I still maybe you guys will catch on to it. No, I can't figure it out. He says, "I gotta call it in. I found the camp," and he sends the grid coordinates. So when this private military company got the contract to take out the diamond mines, the government was like, "Here you go," but we're not going to tell you where they are. You got to figure it out for yourself. Like, yeah. So this was so, a little funny because and the government they did had raid it. this camp. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's how bad he got out. Did they kill it? Did they kill everyone there? And we're like, okay, well, leave. oh shit, they took it. They went back. <laughs> I, I was thinking about this too, and I assumed that the rebels retook it as part of the big push that also retook. That also captured uh, uh, Freetown, I think. Right. So I, I can believe that the military isn't there anymore, but, you know, like they have to know it's there. Right. They were making a whole battle plan. Like, we'll cut them off on these roads and stuff. Like, they didn't need Archer to call it up. Like, <laughs> they, <laughs> they fucking knew where it was. And if they didn't, what? So like, I mean, during not, the contract the negotiations, they're like, so where is it? Ah, that's the question, isn't it? <laughs> so, so. <laughs> Not to poke holes in your theory here, but what happened was in the film, the the military that was was actually fighting for Cape or the Freetown was devastated and surrendered and was executed. So the government actually hired the colonel's private military company to fight for them, and they were hired to take out Freetown. And when Archer showed up, they weren't supposed to go into the other sites to get the blood diamond, and that's why the colonel by himself took a copter out there to no, do that. No, they were paid to take the diamonds back because he said then he no, would get no, the weren't. diamond rights. He would get rights to the mining there. No, he was just going after the archer was just telling him that there was a blood point, there was this giant point of diamond. issue here. No, they okay. could well, see it was hired to take the I wrote it wrong. He was hired to take the diamond mines back because then he would get concessions for mining them. He was hired by well, whatever. So, like, okay, so this is my reading of it. Um, <laughs> the colonel was hired to, uh, and this organization, which is based off a real organization called Executive Outcomes, um, they were hired to fight the rebels. Um, not, I don't, I don't think taking back Freetown was necessarily their scope. They were just supposed to, you know, uh, quash these rebels, um, and presumably, like. Yeah, so the the rebels have really kicked the ass in the military, but it's not like they've totally taken over the country. There was still a government to hire the PMCs. And I have to assume the military, you know, like someone wrote this down somewhere and put it in a filing cabinet. <laughs> Where but... this diamond mine is. <laughs> yeah. Small point. I, I, it's a very small point that we got wrapped around, but... <laughs> well, no, this is a... the most important point. <laughs> no, I, I, have a, I have a small point. Oh, uh, oh okay. Executive Outcomes is a badass name for a PMC. Right. <laughs> and it's a true story. That Those guys dope. really existed. <laughs> the like weren't it wasn't Executive Outcomes they were like a battalion within the South African army that just left and became Yeah, no, this it's what happens in this movie is literally just name swapped. It's a it's a colonel in the South African military who uh, left and formed a PMC and, and fought in various African wars. Can you imagine if the 82nd just like quit the army? <laughs> just like the, an entire detachment of an army just said, ah, fuck it, we quit. And then just became a mercenary group. That's so crazy to me. Fucking TIA. Yeah, TIA. <laughs> um, there was, uh, on, that, on that note there, 
there are a few scenes that were really good. As much as I, I gripe about this not quite sticking the landing, there are some some really good moments where, um, you know, the the last exchange between uh, the colonel and Archer as the colonel dies, you know, as he says, TIA, um, tries to pull a gun on Archer, but gets shot before he can. Um, yeah, so the the line in the standoff where um, the, the it was a really good callback where, uh, you know, the colonel and two or three of his men have Solomon and Archer and Dia um, dead to rights. And Solomon is convinced Archer has betrayed him. Um, but Archer references something he said earlier, saying... Uh, that's when I'll give up smoking or I'm I'm going to have to give up smoking in reference to what did he say, he, you know, he would so, give up smoking for he would. So earlier he said um, he, he needed a cigarette or something. And um, he I think Solomon makes a, a quip about how it's bad for you or whatever. And he's like, well, if you get me this diamond, I'll stop smoking. Um, and then fast forward to the confrontation. Uh, he asks one of the uh, his captors for a cigarette. And he says no, and uh, he's uh, Archer says uh, it's that's fine, you know I I quit anyway, mm. and that cues Solomon into being like oh yeah Ar- Archer is on my side um, yeah I thought I thought that was pretty clever very clever um, yeah anyway so we've kind of covered the whole movie um, I do I did enjoy seeing Michael Sheen at the end um, I always like seeing him in a movie. He's always Michael good. Sheen was in this. Yeah, he's the uh, the diamond rep or the, the his oh, he, assistant. Fuck, he was. Yeah. Vanda Cap. I missed that rep. Yeah, not not De Beers. I, not De Beers. Yeah. So, <clears throat> okay, so so I guess that's that's a good thing to go over at the very end. So Solomon gets to London with the diamond, and Maddie helps him to set up this meeting with um, Van de Beer, and they meet up with him. <laughs> while she's photographing this whole thing and he says like he presents two million dollars or two million pounds to solomon and solomon says that's not enough and he says well what's enough and he says well i want my family and the money and so he goes gets his family out of the refugee camps flies them to london and then also gives him two million pounds and then Solomon takes him to court to like expose all of this shit. <laughs> really fucks him like, over. That's ballsy, <laughs> right? Yeah, um, yeah. I, I have something to say. But we'll come back to it in a minute. But um, I, that kind of takes us through the end. Um, I guess any any overall thoughts about the entirety of the movie, or just kind of general thoughts before we move forward? The was that car that Solomon rode in to the airport just a regular taxi? Because I was thinking like. Did he just take a regular taxi to this secret meeting where they're going to trade a blood diamond for $2 million? And I'm sure... It must have been some kind of private taxi. I'm sure <laughs> not De Beers sent a car for him. Right. They didn't send a Mercedes or something. They just sent this green taxi. No. You get in a London black cab and you'd be happy about it. I was just thinking like that taxi driver's like, holy shit, what am I watching right now? So what what just happened? Why did he give him a silver suitcase? <laughs> He's like, keep the meter running. <laughs> like I had a they just pulled him out. Diamond the whole time. <laughs> yeah, they just shoot the taxi driver. <laughs> Family's hugging in the fucking hangar. You just see some guys like grabbing. He's like, hey, what the fuck? <laughs> 
So um, what uh, what I do find amusing about this movie is just how consistently they just offer like generic brand uh, Kroger brand versions of everything that happened in real history. They just take executive outcomes and make them a generic PMC. Uh, De Beers is Vandicap, which I'm pretty sure is the name of a uh, tartar sauce brand. Um, <laughs> Or like fish sticks or something. <laughs> Don't mess tartar with big tartar, bro. Conglomerate. <laughs> so that's interesting. Are you saying this film that was trying to like make a political statement was scared of being sued? Yeah, I think well, a little bit. According to Wikipedia, quite literally, they they tried to be really factually accurate to cover their bases legally. But yeah, I, I think it it's yeah. I just found it amusing how um, committed they were to just. Offering generic names for for every potential wow. issue. I mean, that's it's a little hypocritical on their point. <laughs> what <laughs> that they're providing counterfeit blood <laughs> diamond blood diamond <laughs> companies. I didn't mean that, but yeah, <laughs> blood PMCs. <laughs> the true hypocrisy lies in the fact that a hundred carat diamond like went for auction for thirty three million. And this movie grossed 171 million. <laughs> oh, what the fuck? Got you, Mister Zwick. Mm. <laughs> uh, blood filmography. I also uh, <laughs> a little blood filmography. <laughs> I I had an issue with the uh, the end title song. Like they do this big emotional raise. And, you know, we're standing there with Solomon as he's like realizes he's got out and what they've accomplished, and then it's like. Basically, Rage Against the Machine drops to like end the song. It's like, oh, blah, 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 diamond. <laughs> I was like, wait. Well, that actually that that feeds into Jack's point because this was like the Kroger brand Ludacris theme song. Yeah, the it was like, <laughs> wouldn't you want like just the score from the movie playing, like that dramatic high, like to lead you in, so you're sitting there going, wow. Instead, it's just like, oh, <laughs> you're like, wait. What? <laughs> I mean, honestly, like legitimate, like actual Rage Against the Machine would not be like a bad choice for this movie. <laughs> That's fair. June said Kroger brand Lucas. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. I, I get the rap song was like for the movie it was like right on the button, but it, it didn't match the uh the emotions that they were trying to invoke. It kind of was jarring. Uh, I had a big issue with that, which yeah, is kind I of agree. a lot of points in this there. movie. Yeah. So I guess just to um, keep us moving forward a little bit. So as far as uh, some trivia about this movie, like we mentioned, um, they were consu- concerned they were going to get sued. So they had to like take extra precautions to make sure everything <laughs> it, you know, was factually accurate and they kind of were not um, you know, saying anything untrue that could make them a target for you know, De Beers, for example. Um, I don't think Executive Outcomes was around to sue anymore. Uh, yeah, as far as critical reception, this was pretty uh, widely uh, accepted. Rotten Tomatoes has it pretty rough at 63% uh, approval rating, which huh. is for on Rotten Tomatoes for a ostensibly really good movie is pretty rough. Can I, uh, can I say something about that? Yeah. So I remember that when this movie came out, and I think I said that earlier in the podcast, this did not do well. Like the first year it came out. 
And I remember like the biggest thing was like people hated it. And I don't know why they hated it. Like it, it, it's a political statement movie, but people like hated it for like weird reasons, like the accents and the, I guess the shit we're griping about, but it didn't do very well. And I, I don't know why. Well, as far as political movies, I it obviously had something it was trying to say, but I didn't feel bashed over the head like some political movies can be. Everything felt pretty real and not too preachy. Well, I guess what I'm trying to say is like I think this Rotten Tomato score is, is coming from the original release of it. This is as of um, 2016, I think. Or no, I'm not sure. But yeah, I mean... Um, to what you said, Shane, I think there's kind of a mixed bag there where it there's kind of a spectrum of, I guess you could call them sort of activist movies where they are championing a cause. There's the ones that lack all subtle subtlety and kind of hammer you with it. There's ones that um, kind of thread the needle and do it at just like the perfect level, but with focus. And I feel like this one is kind of in this area where, or maybe at the other extreme where it doesn't hit you over the head with it, but the message also kind of gets messy and gets mm-hmm. lost a little bit between trying to do too much or like it, you you see where it's going, but it doesn't stick the landing. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. Um, God, that's fucked up, though, like because it was supposed to be a pretty good landing. It made one hundred and thirty three million. I wonder how much it costs. One hundred seventy one on a budget of one hundred. Yeah, so $100 million budget, $171 million when all is said and done. So it's it's not like it was a failure by any means. It was certainly financially successful. Well, I mean, isn't the goal um, but, of any movie to double double its budget at least? I mean, nowadays it's to make $1 trillion, but... Yeah, I mean, it's it's successful, but it's not like a blowout for sure. Yeah. Um, it was nominated for five Oscars. I, I can uh, see that. Why? Didn't win any, but was nominated for Best Actor and Best Supporting Actor for uh, oh, Best Supporting Leo DiCaprio. Actor for sure. Hold up. Who do you think should have changed? Shimon you, you said you for can Best see Supporting. That. Well, yeah. So that's one. Name four more that should have well, won. Leo wasn't bad. I thought Leo. For four more that should have won Best Supporting Actor? What? No, no, no. I'm saying, so the, the, you said five. Mike, do you realize how good the sound editing was, was in this the movie? The score. Okay, so we got two. That's awesome. <laughs> now, three more. I need it three more. It wasn't good enough to win an Oscar. Um, sound mixing. Sound and film mixing. editing. So the the five categories it was nominated for were Best Actor, Best Supporting Actor, Best Film Editing, Best Sound Mixing, and Best Sound Editing. Okay, oh, yeah, sounds. I can get behind that. That was <laughs> that, You should have said that to begin with. <laughs> no, if you gave me a goddamn minute. <laughs> I disagree with the Best Actor nomination. I don't think Leo was anything special uh, in this movie. I would have to see what he what he knocked off. So this was the competition for best actor this year um, at the 79th Academy Awards. Uh, Forrest Whitaker in The Last King of Scotland. Oh. Ryan Gosling uh, half, in Half Nelson as Dan Dunn. Peter O'Toole in Venice as Maurice. And Will Smith in The Pursuit of Happiness. Ooh, come on. Oof. So that that's the competition it's up against, uh, to give you a reference of the playing field. Uh, it was won by Forrest Whitaker. Yeah, that makes and, sense. Uh, it was only nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Uh, Juman Hansu uh, did not win. Uh, and he was up against uh, Alan Arkin in Little Miss Sunshine, Jackie Early Haley in Little Children, Eddie Murphy in Dreamgirls, and Mark Wahlberg in The Departed. Mm. 
Well, I don't think it's I don't think it's anything to be surprised by the Academy using a political movie to promote the political uh, agenda of the film, right? So, well, like you, putting, yeah, you would think so, but it wasn't up for best picture. Yeah, it, it didn't get no, a best no. picture or director. <clears throat> the Academy is going to promote a political agendas. They they've been known to do that, and using this film by saying we're gonna at least put DiCaprio as the lead as like even though he's not gonna win, they at least pushed the fucking promotion of this film and what the agenda was, right? Oh, so you're saying the fix was in to get Leo a nomination? Yes. Mm. <laughs> okay, behind that. Uh. <laughs> that is an interesting point, though. With a with a movie that clearly had a political agenda, it was not even nominated, and the movie that won Best Picture this year was The Departed. Yeah. Ooh. Normally, the political movies have a lot more legs when they get into the Oscars. But, uh, yeah. I mean, when The Departed, I mean, <laughs> that movie steamrolled everybody. <laughs> I mean, it was up against Letters from Iwo Jima, too, but but anyway, take us home, Jack. Yeah, so um, kind of the the verdict on the movie, the part where we re-rank all these movies we've seen into a, you know, the list of what we think the uh, ordering should be, uh, our rankings. Um, how do you all rank this movie among the movies we've seen? June, where do you put it? Oh, God. Um... You know, this is one of the hardest. This is rough. I think I'm going to put it at number nine between Ratatouille and The King's Speech. Um, it's not to say it's a bad movie, but and I might be biased because I've seen it like four times. But I don't know; it just didn't have as much of an impact as as some of the ones higher up on the list for me. Right? Yeah. Mike, where do you put it? Well non-circumstantial but it's going at number nine as well but for different reasons um it's going underneath the martian this is a film that i felt like it was pushing a political statement and i like i'm i'm happy to have learned about it it definitely changed my thought about that whole thing in fact it changed everything i did with buying jewelry since then but i gotta say the acting and the actual film itself as a film which is what we're doing here was terrible it wasn't very good but I did like the fact that they used it to um, inform me that this was a real thing. And I took a lot away from it. And then at the end, it was enjoyable. Shane, where do you put it? Yeah, so I'm kind of in a tough spot like June and Mike. It, it, when I first saw this movie, it would have been right at the top. Like it would have been competing for top four. But like as I watched it this time, and this is kind of like watching it with a critic's eye. I guess, or watching it critically, it it changes the film completely. And like as we talked about it, you, you start to feel a lot of the holes. But I'm going to try and stay where I watched it as a movie, and I really enjoyed it. So I'm going to say number seven, just under The Martian. Just under The Martian? Yes. I It's really, I think it's enjoyable. Um so that'd be number eight for you. So it'd be just over Fiddler on the Roof, just under the Martian. Number eight. So number eight. Okay, number I just eight. have a wrong list then. Okay. But that's where it's going to go. Yeah, so I, I think I am falling in a very similar place. I think I'd put this at number 10 for me uh, behind Fiddler on the Roof. This movie feels like it was trying to be more and it could have been more, but it was kind of a messy attempt at what it wanted to be. I don't know if 
making it also an action movie uh, compromised the drama or you know if it needed to to thin out a few uh, plot threads to give it some focus but overall it just felt like it wasn't what it could have been but it, it was still good it was still enjoyable it's still definitely in the top half of the movies we've seen in my opinion and we're watching almost exclusively good movies with a few notable exceptions <laughs> when I saw this for the first time back in 06 it was a lot better, but I think that was just because, like, I really keyed in on the action sequences, mm-hmm. which were phenomenal in this movie. Yeah. And I just realized, like, this time watching it through, I didn't really even notice that so much. It's just, hmm. just an interesting That's a good point. shift, I guess. That's a really good point. I, I also don't know what you all think, but I, I do feel like there's a little bit of an element of watching this in 2020 feels different than it would, I feel like, in in the mid 2000s sure absolutely (laughs) (laughs) i i feel like um yeah yeah i i think the there are different issues that that are at the the forefront of the american psyche in 2020 (laughs) well Um, if you think about this like documentaries of like if they made a documentary of this which they have made many documentaries of what's happened in in africa with this type of situation is not a lot of people have enjoyed it but if you make a blockbuster movie and people realize it they kind of they kind of achieve their their purpose right like yeah i they think so people yeah. Understand. Oh, yeah. sure I, I also remember a lot of scenes then i realized that weren't in this movie they're from tears of the sun <laughs> i was like god damn it have i been confusing tears of the sun and blunt diamond for years why is that not surprising <laughs> so <laughs> final verdict on this movie the last say do you recommend watching this, June? Uh, yes, absolutely. Shane? Oh yeah, yeah. Watch it. It's a good movie. Mike? Yeah, you gotta you gotta know what's going on. Yeah, and I, I totally agree. It's definitely worth a watch. Um, well, that's episode twenty-five in the books. Ten percent of the way done. Next up for us is the Night of the Hunter, um, a movie I know nothing about. The fuck is that? What? Yeah, me. What the hell is this shit? Is this? <laughs> yeah. All right. right.